Last week we started our Unsung Heroes sermon series, and we looked at the prophet Hosea. That book is often neglected, but it gives us a clear and maybe even startling and uncomfortable look at just how kind and gracious and merciful God really is to his people. God called the faithful, obedient prophet, Hosea, to redeem his unfaithful and rebellious wife, Gomer. And you might say that the story serves as a preview of the gospel, that the very son of God, Jesus Christ, would submit himself to far greater shame and far greater suffering than Hosea did in order to redeem unfaithful, rebellious people like us. But today we move to another Old Testament book, one that is even more unsung than Hosea, and that is the book of Lamentations. Old Testament scholar Walter Kaiser says, No book of the Bible is more of an orphan book than Lamentations. Rarely, if ever, have interpreters chosen to use this book for a Bible study, an expository series of preaching, or as a Bible conference topic. Why do you think that's the case? Why is Lamentations an orphan book? Why is it so thoroughly rejected by so many readers of Scripture? Well, the easy answer is because it's sad. To tell you just how sad this book is, before it was called Lamentations, it was often identified by the first word of chapter 1, verse 1. How? How? Why? But sorrow, grief, and mourning the major themes of Lamentations. They appear quite frequently in the pages of the Bible. And additionally, sorrow, grief, and mourning are all too familiar parts of our own lives. Every single one of us either already has or someday will encounter loss, pain, and tragedy in this life. So if that's the case, Then how in the world, why in the world, would we ignore the one part of Scripture that might say the most about it? Now, traditionally, though we may not know for sure, Lamentations is said to have been written by the prophet Jeremiah, the man known as the weeping prophet. And if, for whatever reason, we ignore Jeremiah's words in Lamentations, we miss out on a valuable resource for our own times of grief a valuable resource of God's truth for our own times of suffering. So even though reading Lamentations can be gut-wrenching at moments, that's where we're going to be today. So open up to Lamentations chapter 1, verse 1. Lamentations is right in between Jeremiah and Ezekiel. So if you can manage to find those, Jeremiah, rather Lamentations, is in between them. Feel free to use the Bibles that we provide or take a Bible home with you if you don't own one. But let's pray and then we'll get started. Father, we come here knowing that there is a lot to lament in our world. There is injustice, there is pain, there is suffering, there is evil. There are horrifying things that happen in our world. And so, Father, sometimes we read the words of Jesus and we hear him say that the kingdom of God is here and the kingdom of God is amongst us. And sometimes we have a hard time believing it. 
But Father, I pray that we would trust that your kingdom really is here, even though we can't always see it. Even though it seems like your kingdom is overpowered by the kingdom of darkness in this world. I pray that we would trust that you know what you're doing, that you're still good, that you're still holy, you're still powerful. And so, Father, as we read this book full of grief and full of lamenting, we may come here as people with our own grief and our own lamenting and our own sorrow. And, Father, I pray that somehow, some way, reading this portion of your word would help to direct our eyes to you. When everything else seems to be falling apart around us, help us look up to you. We love you. We praise you. We thank you for Christ. We ask all these things in his name. Amen. Well, as we read the book of Lamentations, we find ourselves standing in Jerusalem right around the year 586 B.C. Now, when I say the numbers 9-11, what comes to mind for you? Well, if you were born before 1995 or so, you immediately think of one event. You think of New York City. You think of the Twin Towers. You think of Flight 93. You think of the Pentagon. You think of George W. Bush reading a children's book to an elementary school class in Florida. When you hear those numbers, 9-11, those vivid memories of destruction and loss, sorrow and outrage can come rushing back to you in an instant. Well, the number 586 would have had the same effect on an Old Testament Jew. 586 was their version of 9-11. Because 586 was a year of national tragedy. When someone said that number, you knew exactly what they were referring to. 586 is when Jerusalem, the seemingly invincible city, was leveled. Like those who thought the Titanic could never be sunk, many Israelites assumed that Jerusalem could never fall. It wasn't that the city itself was invincible. They knew better than that. It had the same walls and same defenses that every other city had in the world. But they thought Jerusalem was invincible because unlike all the other cities, God was there. Solomon's temple was there, housing the Ark of the Covenant, the very presence of God himself. That temple was the crown jewel of the city, the crown jewel of King David's royal family line. You thought it was invincible. And yet here you stand with rubble and devastation as far as the eye can see. The city has been destroyed. The temple has been burned to the ground by the Babylonians. You can still see the blood. You can still smell the smoke. You can hear the cries of the injured. You're one of the few survivors that Babylon left behind. Now, what do you say at a moment like that? What do you possibly do at a moment like that? Well, there's really only one thing you can do, and that is lament. Starting in chapter 1, verse 1. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow she has become, she who was great among the nations. She was a princess among the provinces, but she's become a slave. She whips bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction 
and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations, but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads to Zion mourn, for none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate, her priests groan, her virgins have been afflicted, and she herself suffers bitterly. Her foes have become the head, her enemies prosper, because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone away, captives before the foe. From the daughter of Zion, all her majesty has departed. Her princes have become like deer that find no pasture. They fled without strength before the pursuer. Jerusalem remembers in the days of her affliction and wandering all the precious things that were hers from days of old. When her people fell into the hand of the foe and there was none to help her, her foes gloated over her. They mocked at her downfall. So you read these words about the fall of Jerusalem and they're so powerful that they make you want to join in on the weeping. The glory, the beauty, the very life of Jerusalem, the so-called city of God, has been obliterated. The surrounding nations that Israel trusted in either directly betrayed them or simply looked the other way in their time of crisis. Their enemies have won. Their leaders have fallen. It certainly appears that all is lost. And as they lament, the Israelites must be wondering... How could this happen? Why did this happen? But truthfully, they already know the answer to that question. Verse 8. Jerusalem sinned grievously. Therefore, she became filthy. All who honored her despise her, for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns her face away. Jerusalem has sinned grievously. All this has happened to them because of their sin. And they know deep down that they brought this all upon themselves. We see more of this in chapter 1, starting in verse 18. The Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. But hear all you peoples and see my suffering. My young women and my young men have gone into captivity. I called to my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and elders perished in the city while they sought food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, for I am in distress. My stomach churns. My heart is wrung within me because I have been very rebellious. In the street, the sword bereaves. In the house, it is like death. The Lord is in the right because they have been rebellious. It goes on in chapter 2, verse 17. The Lord has done what he purposed. He has carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 28, God is very clear with the Israelites of what will happen if they transgress this covenant. And that's exactly what came true. God wasn't joking. Lamentations chapter 3, starting in verse 37. Who has spoken and it came to pass, unless the Lord has commanded it? 
Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Why should a living man complain, a man, about the punishment of his sins? If you've ever been touched by any kind of significant loss or death or suffering, you know it has a way of changing your perspective on the world around you. And it may even cause you to look in the mirror and reevaluate yourself. And that's exactly what has happened here. God has subjected his people to a horrific tragedy. And in the process, they came to realize that they deserved it. They came to realize that God was right and justified to treat them this way. They came to realize that they had utterly abandoned and betrayed him. So their lament is not just coming from how bad things are around them. Their lament is coming from a realization of their own sin. Their lamenting is what Paul would refer to as godly sorrow in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. It's an expression of grief over their rebellion, an expression of grief over the destruction that came along with it. But it's the kind of sorrow that brings about repentance. And if you have any doubts about just how bad things really were for these people, all you have to do is read the rest of the book. Lamentations chapter 2, verse 4. We read there, God has bent his bow like an enemy, with his right hand set like a foe, and he has killed all who were delightful in our eyes. In the tent of the daughter of Zion, he has poured out his fury like fire. Chapter 2, verse 9, her gates have sunk into the ground. He has ruined and broken her bars. Her king and princes are among the nations. The law is no more And her prophets find no vision from the Lord. And then verse 19. Arise, cry out in the night, at the beginning of the night watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to him for the lives of your children, who faint for hunger at the head of every street. Look, O Lord, and see. With whom have you dealt thus? Should women eat the fruit of their womb? The children of their tender care should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord. When you see the terror that occurred at the hands of the Babylonians, those haunting words of maybe the most infamous psalm are a little bit easier to understand. The book of Lamentations is the mourning of those people that Babylon left behind. But Psalm 137 is the mourning of those people that Babylon took. We read there, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. But how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall be he who repays you with what you have done to us. 
Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. All of a sudden, Psalm 137, as brutal and as harsh and as honest as it is, it makes a little more sense when you put yourself in the shoes of those people left behind in Jerusalem. Again, it is a national tragedy that you cannot stress enough. But believe it or not, even after reading passages like these, there is a tiny glimmer of hope in the book of Lamentations. We see it in chapter 3, verse 16. God has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I do have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. In the midst of the shock and the horror and the darkness of what's left of Jerusalem, in spite of every display of hopelessness around them, the people of God still have hope in God. How? Why? Because if nothing else, they believe that he's still there. And they believe that he's still God. In spite of what's happened around them, they believe that he is still just as powerful and just as holy and just as good as he was before, even though everything else seems to have come crashing down. You can't help but think of the story of Job. Lamentations is a case of a national tragedy, and Job is a case of a personal tragedy. Job lost everything. His wife even comes to him and says, Job, clearly God has it out for you, so you might as well just curse God and die. Just get it over with. And then Job responds to his wife by saying, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? And then later, Job chapter 13, verse 15 Job says to his friends, who really weren't very good friends after all, Though God may slay me, I will hope in him. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. That second part of Job 13:15 is incredibly important. It's a reminder that as we read a book like Lamentations, we're tempted to jump straight to the hope without spending enough time really wrestling with the lament. We see in these passages that one minute we see utter hopelessness, but then the next minute we see an expression of hope. What we learn is that Job still had hope in God, even though he didn't deserve his suffering the way the Israelites did. But Job's hope didn't stop him from being honest. Being honest about his pain, being honest about his confusion, being honest about his questions. The Israelites were hopeful, even in the midst of a national tragedy that God inflicted on them. 
And Job was hopeful, even in the midst of personal tragedy that God allowed toward him. But we should be honest about the fact that a sense of hope doesn't automatically make all the sorrow go away. It doesn't automatically eliminate all the questions of why and how. We should admit that knowing in our heads that God is still there and that God is still God and he's still good and he's still powerful and he's still holy, knowing all that stuff doesn't instantly fix a broken heart. That's why we can read a passage like Lamentations 3:18. So I say my endurance has perished, so has my hope from the Lord. And yet just a few verses later, the author reminds himself that I do have hope. That God is still there. That God does still care about me. Just because we have hope doesn't mean all the pain and all the questions and all the sorrow instantly go away. They don't. We still find ourselves lamenting. Now the book closes with prayer. And we said earlier that all that was really left to do was lament. Well, you can lament and you can pray. Starting in chapter 5, verse 19. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? See, again, hope and hopelessness right next to each other. Verse 21. Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old. Unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. So we see not just any prayer, but a prayer of petition, a prayer meant to rouse God to action. The Israelites are praying that God would vindicate them in their hope, would show the world that they're not foolish for hoping, even though everything else has fallen apart. And in some of those greatest moments of grief and loss. Sometimes you pray just to remind yourself that God can still hear you. Sometimes all you can do is pray that God would act and pray that he brings an end to that hardship. Now, earlier we asked why we spend so little time in lamentations and more broadly, why don't we talk more about grief and sorrow? Now, again, the surface level answer is pretty obvious. It's sad. We'd rather not talk about it. But I think there's more to it than that. Speaking honestly about our grief and our sorrow makes us vulnerable. And at times we may even view grief as a sign of weakness. We often have that classic pick yourself up by the bootstraps mentality. We admire those people who keep a stiff upper lip in the midst of loss. Get over it. Move on. But there is a place for grief and sorrow in even the toughest people among us. Teddy Roosevelt, who is renowned for his toughness and his manliness, the perfect example of toughness in the pages of history. On Valentine's Day, late in his life, his mother and his wife both died on the exact same day. And on that day, February 14th, Teddy Roosevelt in his journal wrote one sentence. And that sentence was, the light has gone out of my life. The light has gone out of my life. 
Here we see maybe the toughest man who ever lived, by many people's definition, lamenting. Openly, honestly lamenting. Lamenting is not a sign of weakness. It's who we are. We lament. We grieve. As Paul says, we do not grieve, we do not mourn without hope. But we still mourn. We still grieve and we still lament. But that is not a sign of weakness. On top of that, we sometimes avoid the topic of grief because of a poor understanding that many of us have developed. That expressing grief somehow equals a lack of faith. Well, that's not the case in Lamentations. As we saw, we can be honest about how hopeless we feel and still have faith that God is there. And still have faith that God is still God. We don't have to pretend. We don't have to put on a happy face all the time to prove that we're Christians. To prove that we believe. Charles Spurgeon, one of the greatest preachers who ever lived, one of the most faithful preachers who ever lived, consistently dealed with depression. He wrote about it regularly. He talked about it regularly. He didn't hide it. Because grief and sorrow are not signs of weakness. They're not evidence of a lack of faith. And if you think that grief somehow is evidence of a lack of faith, keep in mind that Jesus grieved in the Garden of Gethsemane as he prepared to face the cross. And you don't have more faith than Jesus. And along similar lines, finally, somewhere along the way, many people began to buy this false idea that Christianity and positive thinking are the same thing. Unfortunately, if you go into many Christian bookstores these days, you'll see far more books from motivational speakers than faithful pastors and sound theologians and biblical scholars. A good way to make some money is to slap a cross on the cover of a book about the latest positive thinking fad and treat grief and sorrow as some type of evil thing. Now, I don't want to demonize intentional positive thinking. I have no doubt that it can be very helpful for lots of us when life is stressful and when life is frustrating. But it's not Christianity. Grief has a place in our lives as believers. And if we don't have a proper and healthy understanding of lament, if we don't allow it to have an appropriate place in our lives as Christians, we can cause all kinds of damage. If we're constantly suppressing our sorrow, we may miss out on a valuable lesson that God is looking to teach us. We may be tempted to become self-reliant rather than God-reliant. We may lack authentic relationships because we're never honest with others about our pain and they may not be honest with us about theirs. We'll be ill-equipped to minister to others in the midst of their own tragedies. And we may come across as cruel or cold or judgmental that people don't have it together as well as we do. We need to understand that faith is not the silver bullet that eliminates all lament from our lives. In fact, at times, it may even be the direct source of it. So to put it all together, there is a place for lamenting in the lives of God's people. We don't have to keep up appearances and bottle up our doubts and fears and questions and sorrows and pains 
just because we're Christians. Lament is not a sign of weakness. It's not evidence of a lack of faith. And Christianity is not the same as the latest positivity fad. We mentioned that Jesus lamented in the Garden of Gethsemane. Well, he also lamented on the cross. In Psalm 22, we read, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus quotes Psalm 22, and Psalm 22 has a lot about lament in there. Now, it's true that Psalm 22 ends with a message of hope and victory and deliverance and confidence. But that doesn't make the lament part any less real. In that moment, as he hung on the cross, Jesus knew that the father loved him. But Jesus also felt the very real pain of crucifixion. Pain that is worthy of lament. Now, again, a sense of toughness or reminders of the hope that we have in God or a bit of positive thinking might be helpful in some circumstances. Those things might help in the minor stresses of life when you stub your toe in the morning or get in a fender bender on the way home from work or find out that you owe money to the IRS. But when life truly goes off the rails through your own sin, like the Israelites, or from circumstances completely outside of your control, like Job. When your city comes crashing down, and you're standing in the midst of tragedy, ruin, and destruction, you're going to need far more than a positive attitude and a Joel Osteen quote. In those moments, if nothing else, know this. That God is still God, that God is still powerful, that he is still good and he is still holy. And in those moments when you lament, remember that you have a savior and a Lord who knows what it's like to lament as well. Jesus lamented on that cross and died on that cross so that someday we won't have to lament anymore. In Revelation chapter 21, verse 4, we read that God will wipe away every tear from our eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That is our hope. But we also recognize that we haven't reached that day yet, and we're not in that place yet. We still have many, many reasons to lament. Just watch the news yesterday if you're wondering what to lament about. But we do have reason for hope. And we do have reason for confidence. That even in the midst of our ruins, in our own seasons of lament, our lamenting will not last forever. That is our hope. That is our confidence. Even though we might lament right now. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, all of it, every bit of it, every verse, every punctuation mark, every letter, even the parts of your word that we overlook or maybe even intentionally avoid. Parts of your word can be painful. Parts of your word can be sad. Parts of your word can make us think about things that we don't want to think about. 
But Father, you put it there for a reason because you know what is best for us. And Father, I pray that as we have spent time this morning in a portion of your word that can be sorrowful and can affect us emotionally, I pray that we would be able to step back and look at what it is that you're saying to us and look at what it is that you're trying to teach us and discern the ways that you serve us by giving us this portion of your word. Father, thank you that we have a Savior, we have a Lord, who knows what it's like to lament. As the author of Hebrews says, that he knows our weaknesses, that he can sympathize with our weaknesses. That is good to know in our own seasons of grief and mourning. Father, help this to be a place, this church to be a place, where we can grieve and mourn honestly, where we don't keep up appearances or we don't put on masks trying to tell people that we have it all together, that we're all okay, that nothing's ever wrong. Help us to be vulnerable and open and honest with each other like the family that you call us to be. Help us to understand that we are not weak because we have grief in our lives. Mourning is not evidence of the lack of faith. But, Father, help us to turn to you in those times. Help us to look to you for our hope, for our healing, for our deliverance. Thank you, God, for who you are and for what you do, even in seasons of lament. We love you. We praise you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing, and then we'll move to our closing prayer.